I mean, I guess maybe this is the way I think, but I just have this image in my head that I can't get out. It kind of lingers for weeks, and then I realize that's going to be maybe a part of the cue for a possible painting. There's kind of a cloud of paintings in my head. And if I let it brew too long, all of a sudden it gets too concrete. And, you know, I just can't get away from it when I actually start painting. And so for me, just to do some sketching, do some Photoshopping, it helps me, like, kind of realize the idea. But then if I spend too much time on those and I don't actually start painting it, then it starts to be too concrete again. And I kind of lose maybe some of that, maybe some of the possibility of improvisation or change that could happen to make the painting better. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a tightrope, you know, you can't, you can't have too much preparation for a painting or else the painting just kind of feels sometimes dead on arrival. It just doesn't feel, you've kind of lost your energy for it. But also if you don't do enough of it, I think the structural integrity of the painting really uh, is not there. You just, you don't, it doesn't feel like it's fully cooked. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 121st episode, Anders Johnson joins me to talk about his work and also the three-person exhibition that we're a part of, including Melissa Wilkinson. The show is called Retrofit. It's at Doan College in the Rail Gallery, and that's in Nebraska. So we talk a bit about that the development of this work, and all sorts of good stuff, so please stay tuned for the interview. Of course, if you've never heard of Studio Break, we want to remind you that we are a podcast and blog site. We feature a variety of different artists. They come on, they talk to me about their studio work, their development, and we share all the interviews on studiobreak.com. All of the episodes are available through the archive feature right on the left sidebar. You can scroll month by month and check out all the great artists that you missed. You can go and subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which is a great way to stay up to date with all the current episodes. Please check us out on Facebook and like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. And you can also follow us on Tumblr, that's studio-break.tumblr. So please go ahead and do that. We always love hearing from folks. Lastly, you'll want to check out andersjohnson.net. Check out some of his work or check out the gallery on studiobreak.com before you listen. It's always helpful to see what we're talking about, so please do that. All right, without further ado, here is Anders Johnson. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. I'm really excited to be joined this afternoon by Anders Johnson. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. You know, it's nice to kind of, you know, get a chance to talk to people about about their work. And and certainly, you know, we have a a show together, a three-person show called Retrofit. And, uh, you know, I thought it'd be fitting, I guess, for you to to come on. So, again, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to uh, talk to you. So first, I always like to start off just by getting, you know, a, a bit of a background. So could you tell us, you know, where you're at and, you know, what you currently uh, are, are doing aside from painting? Sure. Uh, right now I am living in southern Indiana in a town called Vincennes. And uh, outside of painting, I'm teaching at a two-year uh, university called Vincennes University. It's a transfer school. Uh, so a lot of the students go there will eventually transfer to um, kind of larger four-year institutions uh, with an art degree um, in Indiana usually. So, uh, and I've been yep been here for four years, and I think that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. Cool, cool. And and again, I I always think it's interesting, you know, kind of coming to to work somewhat blind, you know, in the sense that 
we might have we might have had different experiences growing up, but I'm, I'm curious what similarities there are, you know, because especially the way that a lot of your work kind of in- incorporates these kind of like flat painted areas and, you know, certainly, I don't know, makes me start thinking of, I guess, the way that I kind of framed the lens through a television. But um, I guess oh, you can yeah. tell me, I guess you can kind of tell me a little bit about about how accurate that is. But um you know, what, what kind of interest did you have as a kid? Were you a, an avid drawer? For some reason, I just imagine you filling up sketchbooks. I was. You're absolutely right. Well, my, my parents are both professors, and my mom uh, has taught sculpture, and she's also taught a drawing class. And so all my childhood, she would just make these little uh, books for me, and I could just fill them up. And I was just constantly sketching just as gruesome of monsters as I, as I could possibly sketch and just making just really... Sort of like, I feel like drawing for me was just the ultimate freedom. I could say whatever I wanted to as long as it was a drawing. And uh, so my, my mom was incredibly supportive throughout my childhood. So I did a ton of drawing. Just every day I was constantly drawing. In school, this became more of an issue. Um, I think you're right, just with some maybe some of the TV influence I was thinking about. My childhood, and I remember one influential show for me was on MTV. It was called uh, Celebrity Deathmatch. And right. it was uh, claymation fights between different kind of pop cultural icons of the time. This is kind of maybe 1996 or so. I'm trying to think of some of the, the people. Like, I'm forgetting everybody who's on it right now. <laughs> but basically, it was just this amazing show for a young teenager to watch. And so I started making my own drawings of sort of my celebrity death matches. And one of my most controversial ones, I think this was eighth grade for me, I did... Uh, the Wu-Tang Clan versus the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> and in my mind, this was a perfectly responsible drawing because the Wu-Tang Clan was definitely winning at every aspect of this right. fight. However, my teacher saw this, and uh, I had to have a one-on-one conversation with her about just what's appropriate to draw. And I think she just completely, obviously, misinterpreted the drawing. Right. And since then, I've never seen that drawing. It's probably tucked away in some kind of uh, psychological file somewhere. Uh, in my old school, but I, that was when I started to realize that, you know, drawing does contain a certain, I don't know, a certain uh, influence, and it sort of is kind of a, a dangerously powerful tool sometimes, especially if it's misinterpreted. So that was, it was really, yeah, my childhood was a ton of drawing. Up until about that moment, then I kind of toned it down a little bit after that. I got really uh, worried about <laughs> you know, how people were reading my drawings. Well, it's, it's interesting to have two, you know, two parents that are professional artists and, and professors. I mean, obviously it, you know, contributed to your development, but I mean, were there, were there any kind of pressures or? Yeah, it was as long as I was doing something kind of nurturing my own mind, like anything was possible. So they just were completely supportive with whatever I wanted to learn. I was sort of a, a self, you know, kind of an autodidact as a, as a kid. And uh, I would just constantly be looking at maps and looking at uh, different books and uh and so, yeah, I just always, uh, I think from an early age, I really developed a love of learning. And I think maybe that's part of it, too, is they were just constantly, you know, talking about, let's say, political events or, you know, they were, you know, I learned from a young age, like, what a Democrat was, what a Republican was. And so I was just kind of this really tuned in little kid. And uh, I think maybe that's probably a direct result from living in a household of, like, two actively uh, intellectual parents. Well, and so did you always then kind of know that that's what you wanted to do? I mean, did they did they suggest, yeah, you should uh, you should go into this world of uh, art making? It's going to be fine. <laughs> I think I don't know if art making necessarily was what I wanted to do. I just was always doing it. I think I knew I wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
in some way. I just loved, I just loved the idea of teaching. It just seemed like such a great profession, and it just seemed like you know the great teachers I had took had so much pleasure out of it. And it also, you know, once you get the hang of it, you know, I guess in a certain situation, it actually seemed like a lot of them, you know, who were naturals were pretty low stress too. So it just seemed like this job that was sort of, sort of ideal as a kid. And uh, just seeing kind of my parents, you know, they were kind of a mid-career when I started noticing just how, you know, just how happy they were by their professions, too, that I, I, I guess I kind of emulated them. Like, oh, I wanted to be doing the same thing. And so did you have, like, any other interests in terms of when you're growing up, in terms of high school, any any sports, any uh, DJ kind of stuff? And <laughs> No, I'm not much DJ, but I did, I did love sports. I definitely am pretty competitive. Uh, especially when it comes to things like basketball. But uh, unfortunately, you know, I grew at an early age, and so I didn't develop some of the necessary skills for basketball. And, uh, you know, slowly but surely by my senior year, I kind of quit all sports uh, by the end of it and uh, really was kind of uh, thinking more and more about art. I really got into photography, actually, uh, during high school. We had a great um, dark room, which I feel like maybe is not that common uh, anymore. But, you know, this kind of, I was kind of the last, you know, 10 years of uh, students t- being able to take black and white photography. And um, I really took over my life for a long time. I was, my, my senior year, I was kind of spending, you know, any kind of free time I had during school uh, down in the dark room, just working on my own prints, doing my own work. And I really, one thing I understood about photography versus drawing was that uh, I really understood what you could do with contrast and value. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, just being able to, you know, produce this really high contrast print, just having these beautiful darks and beautiful lights. You know, I didn't realize in drawing, I'd never found a material that you could do that with. So I was just constantly down there working on these, these kind of high contrast photographs. And I really love this, this, this craft, you know, if you didn't uh, shoot correctly, if you didn't get your aperture, your shutter speed correct, you would then lose your images. If you didn't develop them correctly, they wouldn't work out. If you didn't print them correctly, they'd look pretty bad. So I love this idea that there's so many different steps to this. And if you got them all correct, you were going to have a really uh, nice photograph to look at. So that was, um, that was one of my, I, I think, defining high school moments was uh, kind of finding my own kind of secluded time in the darkroom. Well, I, th- I think that's interesting. I actually took, a, uh, I believe, just like two classes of photography. And I, I don't know, there's something interesting about that that I maybe even wouldn't have thought about until just now. But I mean, just that experience of kind of thinking about the image, you know, not making the image or, you know, this kind of idea of whether or not it's good or bad or, you know, how realistic it is, but just kind of thinking about, you know, how you can alter the image, how you can crop it. You can kind of learn that you can set it up in a way to kind of get the photo that you want. I think that's kind of really interesting to think about that in comparison to, you know, taking on something like drawing or painting, especially, you know, as we were kind of both talking about, you know, as being teachers as well now. So I think that's something that certainly helps reinforce that idea of how you're looking. So absolutely. I think one of the things is with drawing when you're a kid, you you really do lose control. I think around your teenage years, you realize that there's so many kids out there who know how to like, let's say, create a really realistic looking face. And you can't do that. And so for me, like me realizing I just didn't have all this control, I found that in photography and that idea of manipulation was just so important. So I really like I could, you know, I could tell I remember there's this girl in my high school class who was so good at drawing horses. And so I kind of wanted to I knew I could never be able to do that. And I just wanted to find my niche with uh, with something new. And I ended up kind of being the kid who's always in the photography studio. So I, I sort of found my, my place in high school just right at the end with that. 
Uh, and that really, I think, influenced my decisions during college as well. Yeah, and so so where did you wind up pursuing uh, your, your college degree? Um, I actually went to a place uh, in Chicago. It's called North Park University. And it's just a small, I think there's about 2,000 undergrad students there. Uh, mm-hmm. Really small four-year school, kind of on the northwest side of the city. And I didn't, when I got into college, I didn't really still know what I was going to do, except photography was definitely on my mind. And so immediately I got enrolled in the Photo One class there mm-hmm. and a few other art classes. But I really wanted to be a uh, photographer. So that's definitely what I started pursuing uh, right away in college. And it was uh, going well up until I ended up getting this uh, head photographer gig at my school. I was the uh, the photographer for the yearbook and the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized that I don't think I had what it takes to do more of the commercial side of photography. You know, it was constantly, like, just about every night I'd get an email about, you know, needing to go to this event. And so my whole day was sometimes, you know, taken up by all these different photography uh, necessities, these different events that I needed to go to. And I just got really worn out and, you know, people just needed these very straightforward, kind of boring images that I just got really, really tired of taking. So uh, I think I lost a little steam uh, with photography after that, that job, which was kind of grueling. It kind of it took it out of me, just being the only one at the entire school, too. And so it sort of forced me to kind of rethink, you know, maybe I don't have what it takes to get into this field if this is, you know, if it's going to be so much about what other people want uh, you to do rather than you uh, being able to kind of control the things that I was able to control when I was younger. I thought maybe there would be someone to, to kind of, you know, push you towards uh, like f- photographing bands and, and album covers and stuff. I don't know. No, there wasn't uh, <laughs> There wasn't too much of that. That's what I thought the job was going to be. I thought it was going to be just lots of fun photographs to take and kind of letting me do my thing. But it really was just, we need an image for the newspaper. It's got to be, you know, very clear what's happening. It's got to be you know, just photojournalism. It can't be anything creative at all. Right. And right. so I just, I got worn out by it. I, it just wasn't, you know, and they, they I think it was a, I think it was something like $200 for the whole year. It was just, there was just no money involved with the two. So I think, you know, it doesn't really run my life, but just the fact that I didn't really, I kind of spent all my money immediately for that, for that job, uh, didn't really keep me very motivated by it. So well, it, it makes me wonder, too, what, what the, you know, the, the fork in the road would have been. You know, you could have been, you know, photographing, like, hoses for Lowe's. Sure, yeah. Down the, down the road, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I would have been if I would have stuck with it. Well, So was there, like, a class or, you know, something that kind of changed that? My junior year, uh, it just strangely worked out that I was able to study for the uh, entire year in Europe. And I went to a study abroad program, an art study abroad program in Cortona, Italy, through the University of Georgia. Just an incredible study abroad program. At that time, it had been around for uh, 35 years. And they just really had the entire the entire program just down. It was just, just ran so smoothly. And I took my very first oil painting class there. And it was a painting one class. It was actually taught by a grad student. And it was his first time teaching. But I think his energy just, um, you know, he maybe didn't have as, as much experience teaching, but his energy was just so great. And um, also, he was just so approachable that I just ended up learning so much more from this class than I think I had ever had from any other painting class before. And one thing, I, you know, as a kid, I was just using, like, tempera and acrylics. And, you know, I took a painting one class in college before that. And I just bought the cheapest paints. I, you know, I bought the worst, you know, student-grade uh, acrylic paints. And so I was used to these really 
kind of acidic yellows and just really synthetic looking colors. Mm-hmm. And with oil paint, you know, we you can't buy bad oil paint in Italy. So we were using just these incredibly quality colors like the you know, beautiful yellow ochres and cadmium reds. And I just didn't know paint could look like that. And so immediately I was sort of seduced by kind of the physicality of the oil paint. I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never painted with it before. And so, I mean, did you kind of pursue then a lot of the maybe traditional subjects that you would at the time, like in terms of like still life, landscape, portraiture, or what types of things were you exploring in terms of these paintings that you're doing? Uh, For sort of my early career, I definitely kind of followed the traditions of like a love landscape painting. Loved, I maybe didn't love portraiture so well because I, you know, wasn't all that competent at uh, painting the figure. But I definitely love landscapes. I was really influenced by a lot of those expressionist painters. I really loved Egon Schele and then uh, Oskar Kokoschka and uh, Edvard Munch as well. Those are, when I was studying in Europe, those are some of the, the painters that I kept on seeing in museums. And I just was blown away by uh, just kind of the emotion and the colors that they were using for their work. And so I got really uh, definitely inspired when I first started painting by those, particularly those three painters. I guess some of my fir- very first paintings were really kind of trying to, you know, create what they were creating, just using a lot of really bright colors and really kind of highly subjective emotions and things like that. Well, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, with, with your experience, you know, you were talking before about having a lot of experience drawing, you know, prior to coming to college and, and kind of being comfortable with that. I mean, could you just talk a little bit about the, the I guess, learning curve, you know? I mean, you know, as, as someone else that, that maybe teaches younger students, I mean, one of the things that I always, you know, like, try to encourage is this idea of, like, uh, you know, trying things out and seeing what works and, and to keep pursuing it. I mean, was it something that it still took you a lot of time and effort to kind of figure out how to pull these things off that you wanted to, to pull off in your paintings? Yeah, I did. I still don't know if I even have figured it out fully yet. Um, but photography, you know, for me, I was kind of like switching back and forth my senior year of college between photography and painting. And I was really just using uh, one of the ideas to get to the other. Uh, I think I discovered Photoshop just around this time, too, and how I can just take my photographs and you know, turn the perspectives, manipulate them, just combine these different things, making these uh, digital collages. And so I started doing my senior year doing these digital collages uh, and then painting from them. So my senior thesis show, I was taking these photographs that I'd taken and creating these sort of dreamlike worlds where, you know, there's no sense of perspective. Uh, the colors were, you know, whatever I chose them to be, but they're all based off of these, the original structure of these, uh, these towns that I was, I was photographing. So there was a there was a point where both photography and painting really sort of merged into my process, and that really kind of I think led me to uh, where I am today with my work. Still use a lot of um, photographic processes to get to where I want to be with my paintings. And just to kind of further that thread, do you do you use just your iPhone to to get all these photos, or do you have like a a gigantic uh, camera and a satchel or? You know, yeah, something actually, around your neck. <laughs> I, uh, well, I'll use whatever. I actually don't even have an iPhone. I, I don't of, either. So I'm sort of a Luddite <laughs> when it comes to uh, technology. But I do have um, a camera that I will sort of lug around with me every now and then. And I usually just use it. I don't really ever take photographs for photography's sake anymore, but just uh, lugging around a camera to, like, let's say, find a space. And then I'll photograph, you know, every angle of that space I can. And then, you know, using Photoshop, just digitally stitch up a you know, a whole composition based off that multiple series of photographs. And this is usually how I start 
working from painting these days. I work from a, you know, a photoshopped image, and then I'll start to do a charcoal sketch uh, from that image. Mm -hmm. And so this process has been kind of going on for a long time then since you were kind of finishing up from undergraduate with your kind of senior work and then up to, to what you've been doing. Yeah, it really has. Um, really has. Photoshop has been a huge factor in my work. I've always, you know, combined, I've tried to visualize the painting before I make it by creating a Photoshop version of it. Usually they're pretty terrible and I like them to be a little worse because then I won't have to feel like I have to be stuck with it when I start painting. Mm -hmm. I really want there to be some, some problems with the Photoshop sketches. And also I don't want to just end up realizing that my Photoshop sketch was actually better than the painting itself. Mm -hmm. And so I'll try to be really quick about them and just use them almost like, you know, someone would draw. Um, and then I'll uh, try to draw from that Photoshop sketch. Uh, just to keep myself just away from the photograph a little bit and actually try to make it with my own hand. And then from there, I will use that, that usually a charcoal drawing to inform the painting. Um, I also sometimes will flip it. I'll actually do a drawing, and then I'll go back and scan the drawing into the computer, and then I'll uh, find some images that I can actually Photoshop over parts of the drawing. And so I actually have sort of a reverse uh, way of doing it, too. And so they, you know, either way, I think it really works well, and it's better when I actually try both methods of it. And I feel like the more kind of preparatory work I make, the better the painting gets as well. Well, and it's interesting to think because there's a lot of ways that that painting can probably change then or be informed if it's if it's going through these different processes. So, I mean, is that something that kind of allows it to be really open-ended in terms of, you know, what you might explore from one to the next? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, the way I, I have recently worked, just my paintings have gotten more interesting, the more I stay away from just having just one idea in mind for the final painting. I think as a painter, you sort of have, I mean, I guess maybe this is the way I think, but I just have this image in my head that I can't get out. And it kind of lingers for weeks. And then I realize that's going to be maybe a part of the cue for a possible painting. There's kind of a cloud of paintings in my head. And if I let it brew too long, all of a sudden it gets too concrete. And, you know, I just can't get away from it when I actually start painting. And so for me, just to do some sketching, do some Photoshopping, it helps me like kind of realize the idea, but then if I spend too much time on those and I don't actually start painting it, then it starts to be too concrete again, and I kind of lose maybe some of that, maybe some of the possibility of improv improvisation or change that could happen to make the painting better. So it's sort of a it's sort of a tightrope, you know. You can't you can't have too much preparation for a painting, or else the painting just kind of feels sometimes dead on arrival. It just doesn't. You've kind of lost your energy for it. But also, if you don't do enough of it, I think the structural integrity of the painting really uh is not there you just you don't it doesn't feel like it's fully cooked no i think that's very interesting especially to i'm curious to see how that you know changes and adapts as we kind of move towards your your current work sure sure and so so you did you know then from there that you're you're certainly like going to go to graduate school and continue on this path to become a teacher yeah um i wanted to I sort of knew, I just, at that point, I realized that I had, I had missed a few classes. I had missed a, more of a technical drawing class. And so I was a little uncertain about just things of, like perspective. I knew what it was, but I just didn't really fully understand how to correctly do it. Like a figure drawing class, I really feel like I needed some more help with that too. So I actually spent a couple semesters, uh, one semester in New York City, and then I spent um, another couple weeks in New York City taking classes from different schools just to give me uh, give me some better work for my portfolio, my my 
graduate school portfolio at the time I finished undergrad was just not very strong. Right. <laughs> I had, uh, you know, I had, I had finished uh, just maybe about a semester of painting at that point, you know, and I just didn't have enough work for a, for a painting program. I just knew I, I, I was in kind of in trouble for that. So I needed to spend a few years outside of school, uh, just really trying to stay active um, and keep painting. And also I needed some more help. I needed some more before graduate school. I needed just more instruction. And so I lived in New York City for about five months. Uh, in 2007, I um, was able to, my dad, since my dad works for a university, I was able to use uh, some remaining credits that I was able to get as a, as a student of, or, you know, as a son of his. Uh, and I spent that time at a, at a school in New York City. And I had, uh, I basically was able to audit the classes. I had free studio space, and it was overlooking the uh, Empire State Building, kind of in midtown Manhattan. And I also was able to uh, intern for a gallery, a uh, now um, uh, defunct gallery called the Max Protech Gallery. But at the time, it was sort of uh, in the middle of this art boom. So it was kind of an interesting place to work. And so that was a huge uh, formative experience for me. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be pretty. I mean, it's, it's one thing to be, you know, going to school in Chicago. You know, there's certainly, you know, great art scene here in Chicago. But, you know, to kind of be dropped in a, in a place where you're going, you know, street after street and there's just, you know, lines of galleries, you know. Oh, absolutely. Was there anything else in terms of just being in New York City? I mean, could you kind of describe, I guess, that experience or that, I don't know, how it impacted you? Well, I think the biggest thing was actually really hard to make work in New York City because there were so many things to do. I right. sort of <laughs> soak up the city a little bit too much, probably. I probably should have uh, been a little more hermetic in my practice, but I just couldn't help myself. Every night there was something happening. Um, there was an art gallery opening or there was some music playing. Or, um, you know, I got involved actually with, uh, it's called the International Scrabble Club. I'm a big fan of the game of Scrabble. So every Thursday night I'd go over and, and play Scrabble with some of the best Scrabble players in the world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I, I ended up, you know, going back to the studio late in the night and tried to work uh, through the evening. Really, I, at that point, I was just sort of reacting to the city. All my work was just kind of trying to write down almost like a diary, all the things that were, I was seeing and experiencing. I have to say, maybe in terms of work, I didn't get a ton of work done, done there for my art, but I really just learned a lot about contemporary art and really found a lot of new artists that inspired me as well. So, I mean, what so what led you to uh, Bloomington then? I mean, you just wanted to, you wanted to go back, like you were saying, and and kind of be able to study more from that that kind of I don't know that hardcore observational aspect of it, or was was that important? Or yeah, I, I um I guess after New York City, I really understood where I thought I understood, you know, more what the contemporary art world is doing. But I still didn't have a good grasp of how to actually, like, make the work I wanted to make. I had an idea, but I was just never quite there. I never quite had the formal skill that I needed. And so I think that was a big draw for me. I knew IU was sort of a painter's, you know, a painter's school, like for painters, painters. And the the, the professors there had all been there for a long time and really understood the, just the kind of the craft of painting. Um, there was an artist I really wanted to study with, um, his name is Caleb Weintraub. And in Chicago, he had been showing at uh, a gallery called the Peter Miller Gallery. He still shows there. Mm-hmm. And about every year, he'd have this new show of work. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen. It was these just amazingly large, really brightly colored, apocalyptic, fantastical scenes. And there were all these children. The children had taken over the world of adults and were trying to live. They were trying to live with their own childlike rules in the world of adults. And so there's all these like revolutionary battles, animals and children interacting, a very like kind of Hieronymus Bosch feel to the work. 
And I was just absolutely blown away. I just didn't realize he could make work like this. And I just knew that I wanted to study with him. He was kind of the artist that I most closely connected with. And so when I found out he was teaching at IU, that's the, that was sort of the, the school. That was my, you know, the one that I wanted to be at the most, even though I wasn't sure if I'd be able to get in there. And so what was that experience like then to kind of go to start there? I mean, did you feel like a fish out of water then with, you know, like this big reputation of, you know, a school with all of these uh, representational artists, you know, very maybe traditionally trained that are going to just uh, make you humiliated every time you go to a class or... Oh, I was definitely intimidated. I remember we had to uh, present our work the uh, kind of the first week of class to all the professors and all the other grad- graduate students, and I just about had a panic attack. I, I, I was so insecure about my work for a long time, and I'd, kinda, I'd make something in the studio, and then I'd quickly like, hide it away and just forget that I made that. I, was just, I didn't know which direction to go into. And um, actually, Caleb, he, during my first studio visit, came in and he just pretty much said, you know, I had to, I had to fight to get you in here. Uh, nobody else really, you know, thought you'd be ready to, to come here. So what I want you to do is do exactly what you were doing previously in New York City. Make these, I was making kind of these watercolor uh, drawings that just kind of kept on going and going. Whenever I finished the drawing, I'd just add on another sheet of paper mm-hmm. and start uh, connecting them. So it was almost like this scroll-like uh, work. And he really liked those, and he wanted to uh, see what I could do at grad school with those. And so I, I just ended up starting making those again. Just I, I really appreciated him just kind of flat out telling me, you know, this is what you should do. Don't try to start painting the figure. You know, don't you know try to paint really traditionally because that's just not your skill set. And it felt good to hear it coming from him, even though that's sort of you know what I thought I should be doing. Um, it felt really good to know that he actually wanted, you know, kind of what I was doing before. Well, and so, like, as you're kind of adding to these, I mean, are are, are they kind of only watercolorist media, or are there mixed media involved in terms of like drawing? Or um, when I first started making the work, it was pretty much just pen and pen and ink, and then I'd add watercolor over the top of it. And then I started to uh, add more like collage elements into the work. And this is kind of the early first year of grad school. I started um, rather than trying to paint let's say Kennedy's face or something, I'd actually collage in an image of Kennedy uh, on top of this, this watercolor drawing. And so I just started to realize maybe if I couldn't fully represent it, if it looked kind of ambiguous, maybe rather than just trying to force myself to have some skill that I didn't have yet, to just use some imagery, just to actually add collage over the top. So that was a kind of a huge change for me too, is just really start to use a lot more mixed media in my work. I also tried, you know, I really, you know, it was an oil painting school, so I kept on trying to make these oil paintings, and uh, it was so intimidating. I mean, I had, I had people around me, some of the other grad students, you know, incredibly supportive, but they were, I mean, they had studied with, you know, people like Odd Nerdrum. They had these incredible educations, like their entire life had been spent in art schools, and so I learned a ton from them, but I also knew that I just, it was not going to fly. This was, I was trying to, you know, use a skill set that I just didn't have. And so it just was kind of a constant push and pull of, you know, trying to figure out exactly, like, what I should do. And I ended up just kind of having, you know, kind of some, some secret oil paintings that I'd go out and try to paint with oil and get better at that. But I also had sort of my, my other work that I was uh, making. And I was hoping that someday they would, they would kind of merge together. Was there, like, a decision then to kind of switch that, like, towards acrylic then? Or when, when did that come about? I was trying to make these really large scale watercolors. I was basically trying to do what I was doing before graduate school, but just bigger. So I was, I'd be buying these, you know, incredibly expensive pieces of paper, you know, like two hundred dollars sheets of paper, and trying to do these massive watercolors. 
and they were they were interesting, but there's just something missing. I think the the transparency, the watercolor, when they get that big, you just sort of you need a little more opacity with it. It just it just wasn't working, and also the paper starts to buckle so much when you make them that big that the craft issues were really kind of getting in the way of my ideas as well. And so finally, I think during my it was kind of my um, my end of the year, my first year, it was kind of one of the the final uh, critiques. I think it's, this was just a critique with the professors. Uh, they all sort of just said, you know, try acrylic over the summer. Stop painting with oil. Stop painting with watercolor. Just try acrylic. See what happens. And uh, see if see what happens to your work. See how it changes. And uh, it really did. It really uh, started to completely... I, it, things started to click immediately after I, I kind of switched mediums again. And I wasn't doing any acrylic painting at all. So this is kind of an old medium that I you know, first started with, kind of coming back to it for the first time in about five years. Well, and one thing that I'm curious too, then, so to have this kind of like a you know area that you don't feel as strong as, and, and maybe working like representationally, you know, what what did you have to do to kind of start really putting the, those representational elements back into the work? How did you get to the point where, I mean, was it something that kind of developed between each painting? You kind of took on like a new challenge, or like, I mean, I don't know how could you describe that process a little bit? Yeah, I'm trying to. That's a really good question. I think the best maybe solution that I had was looking at more artists. I think my idea of representation when I was a bit younger, when I was trying to paint, was like I thought that I had to paint, you know, like Goya or like Adnerdrome. I thought that's what representation was. I thought there's only one way to do it. And that's just, you know, just wasn't really fully understanding like how many different ways you can represent something. It would still look like something, but it doesn't have to look exactly like an old master painting. I think I was trying too much to just stick with the uh, art history canon when I was painting. And I realized there's people like Matisse or people like David Hockney who are painting representationally, but they're not using that, that kind of that strict traditional way of painting. And so I just sort of let go a little bit. I, I decided that, um, you know, I, I could have my own way of uh, explaining the world. It doesn't have to look a certain way. And I just, tried to find a little bit more of my own, kind of my own vision, what I really wanted in those paintings versus what I think I should have. Talked a little bit about the watercolors, but the, the paintings that came after, I mean, what, what were kind of the subject matter or, you know, ways that you approach them, especially if you're kind of incorporating this, you know, this digital collage element? Content in grad school was definitely, you know, with the digital collage, I think it's hard not to discuss the kind of like pop culture media. And so that was definitely falling into my work a lot. Uh, yeah, definitely was uh, kind of reacting to like current events and political events. And so some of them got pretty political and also just sort of finding sort of like strange ironies in the world and things like that, especially when you're collaging from like art magazines and magazines like that. You're going to get like a lot of bright colors. And I think the content ended up reflecting kind of the images that I was finding in these collages, too. So, uh, you know, one of the paintings, I think, was about this like big battle and I was deciding, you know, finding all these different, like, elements, like putting Napoleon in there, putting, like, a Halo video game fighter in there, finding all these different kind of images of war and just combining them all together. So in some ways, it was sort of this irrelevant take on a battle by just adding so many different um, references in there. And so I guess the content kind of was definitely reacting sort of the, like, contemporary culture and then mixing it also with a little bit of art history. 
And I think that still kind of comes up in my work every now and then. How did you kind of research some of these subjects? I mean, was it literally just kind of, you know, taking these headlines and these stories, these pop culture ideas and kind of merging them with some type of, you know, historical art kind of based thing or, or was it? Yeah, it was, it was a little bit shallow. One of the things that I was missing when I first started doing these was uh, my own perspective. I sort of like wanted to remove myself and just sort of set up a conflation of two different things and just see how people reacted. And I think the general reaction was, oh, that's kind of funny, but it's really fast. It just wasn't, um, I don't think there's a ton of, um, I don't know, just a ton of real connections that I was making. I was more just trying to get a reaction out of people and, uh, you know, just kind of make something a little bit bombastic. And I think what changed is I sort of geared them toward myself a little bit more. And so for my final graduate school paintings, I really thought about myself as like a figure. And usually uh, it's sort of like through my eyes, like trying to see the painting actually, as the viewer enters the painting, they're actually looking through the eyes of me, the painter. And so that really, I think, really helped make them a lot more personal and I think a little more actual content in there versus like a faster read and more of just a kind of a, a shallow read as well. Like the current work is so it seems so calculated. I mean, is there is there a level to that which became, you know, like kind of became more uh, tailored or kind of more pared down or how do, how did how do you I don't know, how do you describe that process in terms of its evolution? I definitely got more confident in how to, you know, to compose and to to find just actual structure and perspective in a painting. And also, I think just in terms of, like, your time in grad school, you want to do everything. You want to try to get as many paintings done. Um, one of my rules in grad school is uh, I had, like, even a bad idea, I have to make it, and then I can edit it out later and not ever use it. But I wanted to make every single thought that I had. And it was really good because I just ended up making a ton of work. But uh, I think since then... Uh, I really actually get to slow down and rather than trying to finish a painting in like two days or three days, I can actually sit down and, and spend, you know, weeks or months uh, working on the same piece. And I think just like anything that you spend some time on, I think, it, you know, sometimes maybe you can spend a little too much time, but I think it just gets more and more, I think, thoughtful the more you actually slow down and think about the work and actually step back and maybe not paint for half an hour, but actually just look at the painting for half an hour and just see how it's how it's actually looking. I think that's one of the biggest changes is just like kind of slowing down a little bit and spending more of a natural amount of time that a painting needs versus just trying to get it done in three hours. Or, you know, I, I remember one night in grad school, I had a 17 hour work day where I started early in the morning and I went until like 4am trying to get this whole painting done in one day. Even though you can do it, your painting will suffer if you uh, try to get the whole thing done in one sitting, at least in, in the way I work. Was it all just kind of acrylic acrylic painting then in terms of your, your thesis exhibition? Yeah, I was still doing uh, acrylic mostly. I would also add some oil on as well over the top of the acrylic. And then I'd also add mixed media elements in there as well. I think one of my paintings had like an actual belt in it. Uh, some of them had razor blades. I think some videotape made its way into another painting. So I was trying to play a little bit with like the surface of the painting and the objects and try to have these objects kind of kind of merge in as well as kind of hang on the surface. So I was, I was still sort of like my, my, I guess my philosophy is still like everything in the kitchen sink would, could go into a painting, but I was trying to, uh, I guess in terms of content, really try to make them a lot more personal. And so all the paintings 
uh, are all kind of these first-person perspectives, and they all kind of have a, a, a theme they go along with for the graduate school thesis show. But, I, yeah, I still used uh, pretty much every single material that I could think of to get in there. And that's something that's changed recently, too. I, I no longer uh, am doing a lot of mixed-media work. I've kind of just limited it to acrylic paint now. Is it pr- still pretty much say, after the same like kind of goal in terms of kind of reaching more of like a, a personal um, approach to these instead of having it be so universal, I guess? Absolutely. I think, um, I think that's what I wanted to do, but I was a little bit nervous about uh, just sort of, I guess, standing behind my paintings and not having to, you know, almost like paint as if I was someone else. I just really feel like the new stuff is just really more personal for me. Um, and less about, you know, just trying to make a painting that maybe would be for other people. So at this point, I don't really worry too much about, you know, kind of stepping back and letting people dig into it. I just, you know, I just kind of make it, I've kind of, I guess, lost my audience in a way, which is, I think is kind of a good thing. I'm not painting for other people anymore. I'm really just kind of painting for myself for these ones. I think maybe that's what's changing a little bit. I think in graduate school, uh, you know, when you look back on it, you really are kind of performing your painting for yourself, you're trying to get yourself, you know, a portfolio for maybe for teaching or for pursuing a gallery. But you're also painting for so many people. There's so many voices in your head. And I think more recently, I just, you know, I still have a lot of great people that I can talk to about work. But I, I definitely am more of like a cave-like painter these days. And so I think my, I'm usually, you know, the only one uh, looking at these paintings. Interesting. And, and so, you know, in kind of developing that more personal narrative I and mean, what, what kind of approaches did you, did you take? Did you alter like what images you were using in the collages or the way that they went together? Or Yeah. I, um, I still do a lot of source material from the internet, but, uh, I kind of went back to what I used to do and I just started taking, finding a place that I really wanted to paint and trying to, you know, get some permission to take photographs and just photographing, you know, every, you know, square inch of the place that I th- think might be helpful for the painting. And so that, I think, really helps me, you know, make it more personal, too, because I've actually been there. I understand what the space, you know, smells like or feels like. I, I can get kind of the emotional tone of the place. And I think that really gets into the work as well. And so that, I think that added a lot of the kind of the personal spin on the work, especially for maybe uh, some of the paintings, I guess, on the top of my website, some of the more recent work. Um, that's kind of the process I've gotten back to. So the one that I would love to talk about is this uh, piece called Trust, which I think is just a, an amazing looking painting. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's something that's interesting to think about. Again, that idea, like I was just saying, of interiors. There's something that seems to like resonate. I don't know. And I don't know that I've been to a, play, a space like this, but maybe you can kind of talk a little bit about that, I guess, and we'll pick it up from there. Yeah. Uh, when I saw your work too, I really, uh, understood that this is maybe a painting that you would react to as well. This is, um, my, uh, I guess my bank painting. It doesn't really look like a bank necessarily, but you'll start to notice some of the more, uh, details like the island that you go to when you're, you know, cashing your check is sort of right as you approach the painting. And, um, that date is interchangeable. So whenever I show that painting, it says October 15, 2013. I always make sure that date corresponds to whatever opening the gallery has. Cause I like this, this feeling that the viewer can kind of approach this painting and see the exact date on the painting as they are, you know, whatever, wherever they're at. So I kind of like that idea in the background. We have kind of the ATM machines hidden behind some glass, uh, behind that, uh, in the, in the deep background, we have all these big box stores, uh, with the parking lots completely empty kind of implying, you know, there's been definitely a huge social change in this country. And especially I live in a very small town 
where I think a lot of people's lives have shifted so completely to the online world that all these physical spaces have just been become emptier and emptier. And, you know, places like, let's say, the, uh, the clothing store just barely has any business because everybody just kind of maybe buys their, their stuff online these days. And especially whenever I enter a bank these days, it's just dead quiet. It's almost reverent, almost sort of like a religious institution these days because there's just no one talking. There's cameras everywhere. Just swipe your iWatch. Just just swipe that, and then you can make your deposit. Or I don't know. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I wanted to create this this really this empty space. Uh, no people. I, I guess the there's sort of these um, kind of underdeveloped deer hanging on the walls, and uh, which may seem kind of crazy for a bank, but I I'm pretty sure I've been to a bank recently uh, in southern Indiana that has like deer on the wall. So it's definitely sort of this. I guess maybe more of a 20th century idea of kind of victory and, and conquering. So uh, I kind of wanted to put that in there too. But I just uh, this was the first painting in the series, and I just like this idea of um, these places that have kind of been a little bit left behind by um, just the just the drastic change in the way people live these days. Well, one thing that I also kind of respond to, and I, I, we'll talk about a number of these, but I, I think it's the way that it seems like then that idea that you talked about initially, the uh, the drawing that you got in trouble for in eighth grade, um, it seems like a way of kind of making work that's about something, you know, being able to kind of, I don't know, maybe talk about even just kind of like living today. I mean, I, I'm looking at this one um, Turing test and, you know, there's certainly like aspects of it that are very contemporary, you know, see like a like an iPad, what looks like an iPhone or you know, yeah. All these eye devices, all these technological devices, you know, outside it looks like kind of like this, um, you know, broken down apocalyptic kind of setting. There's a police car, you know, broken down car, ambulances. I mean, is that kind of a way to kind of tie, I guess, these paintings into those ideas that you had, like way back when you were in eighth grade? And, you know, those those earlier works, you know, kind of had that that way of looking at it, you know? Yeah. Uh, for uh, this painting, I guess I definitely... Th- you mentioning childhood is maybe the first time I've even connected that up, this painting up with anything I was doing as a kid. Um, this this painting for me uh, was actually kind of a real experience I had that I wanted to recreate. This is uh, coming back from Bloomington. A couple of years ago, I was coming back from Bloomington, Indiana, on my way back down to Vincennes. And uh, we were, I think, driving in my wife's car. She has a really nice hand-me-down car from her parents. And we were just sitting in this really bad traffic accident. We were sitting right at, like, basically right at the front so we could kind of see all this action happening. We'd see the ambulance coming by. We saw the cop cars coming by. It wasn't quite as bad as what I painted here, but it was a pretty bad accident. Actually, I left out the uh, the stretcher because I thought that'd be just a little too, maybe a little, even a little too graphic for this painting. But I was just, we were just absolutely still for, let's say, 45 minutes just sitting in the car. We had all these devices going. We had, you know, uh, cell phones going we had all these computers going it was just sort of this illusion of safety you know this this idea that these machines will keep us safe they'll nearly drive for us these days pretty soon they'll be totally driving for us uh but you know the real the chaos of the world would be happening outside and so there's just the separation between kind of the inside the interior of this car uh that feel, just feels uh safe and you know, totally quiet, but then the outside, it does feel like the apocalypse is happening. Something terrible has happened. We don't quite know what it is, but just that disconnect we have when we're in our cars and that kind of that, just that pure illusion that this machine is going to be uh, kind of taking care of you at all, at all times. There's another one that I'm really interested in, be- 
or maybe a couple there then where they're kind of based more on experience and there's a, a 4 a.m. bar one that's similar. But this one's called Rope Sphere. Oh, yeah, sure. Let's talk about that. I mean, that would be something to kind of bring up because, again, it seems like there's like a pyramid back there. Um, is that George Washington on a horse? You know, I mean, again, like, yeah. Um, so how how is something like that one kind of like put together? When you mentioned uh, kind of a childlike way of drawing, I think this one really is much more tied to that, like way I used to create worlds as a kid. And uh, this one was probably the hardest painting I've ever had to work with. Uh, I gave up on it so many times, and I just kind of kept on coming back to it. Um, it's based on uh, a biography of Robespierre, Maximilien de Robespierre, who was the you know the kind of the French revolutionary, who really was the first person in power to kind of implement the guillotine. And uh, this is sort of the last day of his life here. He has either shot himself in the face or someone else has shot him in the face, and he's wearing this bandage. He walks up the you know the platform of the guillotine, and his bandage gets ripped off. And this is the only moment in his entire life where he was documented of having kind of loss of power. His his true self comes out, and he just absolutely crumbles. Uh, so right at the end of his life, his last kind of dying moment is him just kind of falling apart. And I wanted to capture that moment of just ab- kind of absolute despair, this loss of control that he has. You know, I really was struggling with this painting because I wanted to try to. I had this idea in mind of you know, kind of a logical space, perspective, light and shadow that is actually working. And, you know, figures that actually look like they had some weight to them, some anatomy to them. And I realized just, you know, I just wasn't, it wasn't going to work that way. This painting just needed to be a little more fantastical and almost a little bit more ridiculous. And so I forgot about historical accuracy. I kind of just decided to make my own, using kind of the biography, make my own um, setup here. And also, I just started uh, finding actors like I used <laughs> for the faces. I used Paul Giamatti for some of the faces. And then I also used um, Rick Pitino while he's coaching. For everybody who's yelling, is Rick Pitino coaching uh, kind of mid-coach. So I just started having a lot more fun with this painting. And it ended up kind of turning out just a little bit more insane than I originally had uh, intended it to. But uh, it really was kind of a breath of fresh air, and it just kind of made me uh, love painting again to do this one. So I'm really happy I finally did it, but it took me about nine months to actually, you know, stopping and starting and stopping and starting to actually get this one uh, completed. Well, and that's something else that we haven't talked about too much in terms of the process. I mean, obviously, with acrylic, you can layer, and it'll dry quicker and, and, and that, but you can still kind of keep working and keep working it. So do they take anywhere up to nine months, or do they sometimes happen faster, or...? I usually am pretty much working on one painting at a time. I'll have a few going at once, but I usually when I get going on a painting, I can't stop until it's done. I just get too wrapped up in that one painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this one, though, I just had so much frustration that I just put it aside for a while. I did some other work, came back to it, kind of kept on putting it aside. And finally, one day, I just realized I was either going to make up some new rules for this painting, let myself be a little more free with it, or else I'm never going to get it done. And so that's when I just started finding actors to play roles and just letting a little more, maybe a little, even a little more humor come into this painting rather than try to have it, having it be uh, more historically accurate. One of the things I really loved uh, looking through this book, this Robespierre book, was uh, all these sort of kind of like propaganda prints from the French Revolution and just seeing uh, you, there's nothing about them that's trying to be realistic, but just showing almost from like a God's eye view uh, who's getting guillotined this week. And I just absolutely kind of fell in love with these prints, and I wanted to kind of try to recreate my own 
uh, political painting, but a political painting from 1793 you know, versus something more recent. So I just had, a, you know, uh, so much more fun painting this than I had in a long time. So like where you're currently at then, I mean, is it something where you kind of take it, you know, painting by painting in terms of the way that you might approach it? I mean, can some of them be from a more humorous standpoint to start off with or? Sure. Yeah. I think the tone sometimes really changes throughout the painting. This one, I think maybe was a bit more serious to begin with and it became much more humorous. Uh, maybe another painting started out being a little more humorous and became much more serious. Uh, maybe we could flip to um, the very first painting. Cause I think that's a good painting to follow up with. Uh, it really comes from kind of the same um, process, which is reading a book and then making a painting based off of an image from a book. And this is from uh, team arrivals. The, uh, Kearns Goodwin book, and this is uh, a painting, just uh, just a, like a sentence in the book talked about this printing press that was thrown into the Ohio River right outside of Cincinnati uh, mm-hmm. during the summer of 1836, and I just love this image in my mind of, like, I, you know, I live pretty close to the Ohio River. I know this, this river, you know, fairly well, and just imagining this printing press is still down there, and I wanted to uh, create this painting you know, using maybe more contemporary things like a car, you know, finding some things that were thrown into a river. I actually went down to the Ohio and Evansville and I uh, kind of just got a feel for what the river, like what kind of stuff was in the river and kind of the color of the river. And obviously I, I uh, it increased the clarity of the river a little bit. It would be way too murky to see uh, this printing press in real life. But I just kind of wanted to imagine what it would look like if it was still down there. Again, it's it's interesting because then it seems like each one of them can kind of you know, develop for what it needs to be, you know, and, and that you're at a place where you can kind of, you're open enough to kind of let that happen, I guess. Yeah, yeah. This this painting definitely started out as more, not like a joke, but just sort of like, I thought it'd be a funny contrast of seeing all these, you know, cars, broken down cars, and maybe uh, these big Asian carps swimming around uh, this old printing press. But there's something that I feel like I, uh, the tone really changed in this one. I feel like it was maybe more funny, but now it became much more serious, maybe just because of like, I think the importance of this this machine, this this information that was it was passing out, this abolitionist pr- printing press that was thrown into the uh, the river. When we talk about the, you know, the drawing from eighth grade, I think it's because like when you're maybe really young, it seems like you want to put like the world into your work, and that it's universal that way because everybody can kind of go, "That's Jay Leno. I know who Jay Leno looks like," or you know, yeah. whoever. Um, but there's a level that it's very universal in the in I guess you know recognizability. I mean, you can kind of look at these different scenes and you relate to them. They're not very specific. Like, you know, you go like, Oh, that's, you know, this street or that's this bank or, you know, something like that. But it kind of appeals to those universal ideas in in maybe a different way that are kind of really approachable and then kind of allows you to, to have those things in the work where if they were really direct, it might be, you know, too direct and, and kind of silly. Exactly. Yeah. I think, um, as artists, we're always concerned about interpretation, you know, how much, we really want to let go and let it be more universally read. I think maybe that's where ideas of abstraction come in too. But with you know with more representational work, I think a lot of artists are really kind of control freaks about interpretation. And so maybe that's where those ideas of like you know try to make Jay Leno look exactly like Jay Leno. You know you have to make him look like that because that's part of the interpretation. But I think with something like this, um, I'm you know maybe letting go of a little bit of the interpretation too and, and trying to make it a little more universal. Maybe not so directive an image. Well, again, yeah, I mean, it asks you to kind of take the time to, to look and, and put something together. Talking before about, you know, using especially like pop iconography or something like that, it might be something where people go like, yeah, I recognize that, and they move on. So mm-hmm. there's this level of trying to kind of piece together 
um, some kind of narrative from what, what you set up. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Is there anything that we kind of haven't talked about that you, you think could be interesting? I really connected, I guess we haven't talked about, you know, just our kind of connection with our work too. I, I totally understand I was spending some time on your website. I spent maybe about an hour on your website last night looking through your work. And I just totally understand why uh, Amanda decided to uh, kind of put us both into this, this show called Retrofit. That's going to be at Doan College. I really, I, I definitely really connected with some of the ideas of, of your work in relation to mine too. Um, so I'd like to hear maybe just uh, you know talk just a little bit about maybe why you, I don't know why you decided that um, I would be a good person to connect with for this show, I mean, based on your own work. Sure, sure. I mean, I, well, I mean, I think that that kind of there's a lot of artists I think that kind of deal with that flux between making work that, you know, they want to make abstraction, but at the same time, they want to make something that's representational. And I think there's a lot of variations to that. I mean, you could have someone focusing it in slightly different ways where, again, like I think your work kind of on one hand looks very representational, but then you kind of, you know, you see like really flat color shadows or, you know, maybe impossibilities with the way that the composition is set up. And so, again, I think I'm really drawn to that idea of trying to trying to piece this together. I mean, it seems like it's informed by something, but then you're kind of left to kind of figure out what that is. And I think that's something yeah. that makes it really interesting. And again, that, that universality, I mean, maybe perhaps not all of them, but there's a lot of them that kind of have that, I don't know, that kind of put that, that viewer in that role of just trying to figure out what's going on. And they bring something to that. Yeah, they kind of have to find some set of, some kind of closure with it because there's, uh, you know, there's it's not fully, you know, the answer is not fully given to you versus like maybe something I was doing before why I just wanted to like give the viewer the answer right away. Yeah, and again, I mean, you see somebody like Vladimir Putin, and and again, I try to think of like <laughs> what my relationship is to Vladimir Putin, and you know, it's it's very, I guess, in some ways, again, maybe this is too straightforward, but it's all almost very flat. You know, it's like this image. It's like this person that kind of exists somewhere, but you really can't really be informed by that person, you know, or I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. it's kind of an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, I mean, I think especially also like the, the use of color. I mean, there's a lot of interesting kind of bright, you know, vibrant color, you know, and I think of like even just the the transition of your work to the most current. It seems like it's still maybe a heightened sense of color, but it seems like it becomes more, I guess, based on an unfamiliar setting that's familiar, you know, whereas hmm. before, like yeah. maybe the, some of the color combinations seem like they're about something a little bit different. I don't know. So that, that idea yeah. of like a, a contemporary landscape or a contemporary interior abstraction and representation. I mean, I think all of those things are present, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. It's interesting with color. I've really just decided to use just a few colors these days. I'm going to, I used to love to have like a, a palette of like, let's say 50 colors out there and just kind of, you know, doing whatever I wanted. And now I really enjoy just having maybe six or seven colors out and just restricting the palette and just really focusing on, you know, how much color I can get out of those just very few actual tubes of paint. The other thing that I was going to say, too, is that it seems like, you know, when we talk about abstraction and representation, it seems like something that especially when you're, you know, very far away from these, they might seem even more representational. You know, especially with all like the little details that you have, like again, in the one that we we had talked about, Turing test. Um, you know, there's all of these little 
like icons in the car interior. You know, you can see it like a temperature gauge. There's all these details. So I could imagine kind of being farther back from these and kind of thinking them as being, you know, extremely tight representational works. And then, you know, when you kind of get up to them, there's certain things that kind of flatten out about them and oh, sure, you know, yeah. become much more about that experience of maybe the way that we kind of tend to look. You know, I mean, if you think about the amount of time that we spend looking at a screen versus looking at actual artwork or, or physical, the physical world, I mean, eventually it's going to be, it's going to be a, a scary margin. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's, that's a really good point to bring up um, just about the way we look at these versus the way we maybe see the world. And I think the way you see the world, there's always some kind of hierarchy of, you know, you see one thing in front of the other, something's behind, something's out of, you know, something's just out of your focus. But I really like and attract this sort of the northern Dutch Renaissance painters and how everything is as important as everything else. And so there's no real, you know, there's no real blurring of vision. And uh, I kind of treat these paintings the same way where you kind of look at one spot and then another spot will be completely different. But they're all kind of in some ways sort of as important as every other spot right now, too. My my emphasis is kind of everywhere on a lot of these paintings. So again, maybe before we get out of here, then um, are there are there any things uh, coming up in your your future that you're bright eyed and excited about? Yeah, I'll make a couple plugs here. I, uh, the Retro Fit Show. I'm really excited to uh, see that. That's at uh, Doan College at the Real Gallery. That'll be I think until September 26th is the uh, the closing day for that. And I'm actually going to be giving an artist talk. Uh, I think it's that Friday. So I'll be uh, heading to to Nebraska for the artist talk. And then um, I also have um, just one more group show uh, that I'm a part of up in Minneapolis at a gallery called Gallery 13. And I believe that'll be up for another couple of weeks before that show gets taken down. So those are two shows that uh, I'm a part of right now. And then a buddy of mine, I'd just like to plug uh, a friend of mine uh, from college, just opened up a gallery in Chicago called the uh, Video Game Art Gallery. It's called the VGA Gallery. And so this is a brand new venture form uh, focusing mostly on video game art uh, and things related to that. So I'd like to plug his gallery, too, if I can. So, yeah, that's very cool. And also, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't also remind everyone that Missy Wilkinson is in that show, Retrofit. We had her back on, I think, at the beginning of the year, I want to say. So, you know, you could certainly kind of find out more about her work. And I think years ago, I even did an interview for Studio Break. So you can certainly find out more about about that i think it's a really interesting uh group uh to kind of put together yumi and, and missy actually absolutely well again thanks so much for taking the time is is there a, is there a place that people could check out your work by the way yeah if you go to uh andersjohnson.net you can take a look at uh my work so that would be the the website to go to awesome all right well again thanks so much and i apologize for thanking you so much over and over but i'll say it again thanks again i I appreciate it well thank you very much i really love uh being a part of this thanks once again to anders for joining us and please check out his website andersjohnson.net once again his work is included in the show retrofit as is myself and Melissa Wilkinson's. Once again, you can find that at Doan College in the Rail Gallery in Crete, Nebraska. So please check that out. The show runs through September 26th. His artist talk is September 26th as well. And the closing reception for the show is September 26th from 4.30 to 6 p.m. So please check it out if you're in the area. And thanks once again to Amanda Smith for putting the show together. 
You can also check out Melissa Wilkinson's work at melissawilkinson.net. If you'd like to find out more about my work, please check out davidlinaway.com. If you're not familiar with my work, I paint a lot of urban and suburban landscapes that have aspects of architecture and abstraction and representation, so please check them out as well. If you're thrilled to find out about Studio Break, please share it with your friends, tweet it, share it on Facebook. Once again, you can follow our Facebook page and like it so please go ahead and do that we always provide updates from guests that we have coming up or cool announcements so please like our facebook page you can follow us on twitter and say hello there again it's great hearing from people so please keep the tweets coming at studio break is a way to get a hold of us and of course you can follow our tumblr account that's studio-break.tumblr so please go ahead and do that as well also notice that we are in iTunes, so please check out the hyperlink, subscribe to the podcast, and if you ever would be so kind as to leave us some comments, it just helps the many billions of people out in the world that love listening to podcasts, find new things to listen to in iTunes. They might be searching. Your words of encouragement might help them find this one. Our last thank you is to Skylar Mail, who provides the music for Studio Break. He is a multimedia artist, performance artist, painter, musician, and you can check out his work at SkylarMail.com. And with that, we've reached the end of our show. We hope that you enjoyed listening to it. We really appreciate it, and we'll talk to you real soon.